Good morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, if you'll read there with me. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we can gather together this morning, and we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word through Josh this morning, and may you be glorified. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bunny. Well, good morning, you guys. Uh, it's, hope you've been enjoying this relaxing, sunny Corvallis summer, as I know I, know I have. Um, uh, we're in Luke 15 today. And Bonnie just read for us part of the parable. It's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, but really we're going to look at all three parables uh, that are in this chapter because they're all about the same thing. Uh, we look at this beautiful triptych uh, thing here, these parables. They're about things that are lost and found, and they really end up climaxing um, in what you've probably heard called the prodigal son parable. And uh, I'm just curious this morning, uh, as we enter into kind of this way of thinking, this way of thinking of being lost and found, um, I just wonder if you could almost like dig into your memory right now and just remember a time when you were lost. Have you, have you ever been lost before? You, maybe you're thinking probably of some moment when you were a young child, I'm guessing, maybe, right? You're in the store with your parents, something catches your eye. You know, you wander off into another aisle, if you're anything like me, and then all of a sudden when you're done looking at that thing, you, you look over and you can't see mom, you can't see dad, can you? You go to the next aisle, they're not there. You go to the next aisle, they're not there. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a situation like this? What did you feel inside when you realized you were lost? What did you feel? Excitement, right? Unless you hated your parents' you know, tyrannical rulership over you, I guess not. Right? When you feel lost, what happens? You feel a lot of anxiety, don't you? You feel a lot of fear, right? Why, why is that fear and that anxiety part of you when you are lost, when you realize you're lost? What is that saying to you? That's saying that you have a desire to be found, don't you? 
When, when you find yourself away from what is considered home to you, you are now lost. But your desire to actually be found is going to be rooted in how you actually feel when you realize that's true. Do you feel freedom? Do you feel excitement? Or do you feel that, uh-oh, where's home? Where's home? These are the defining factors of what it means to be lost and found. In, in, these, in these three parables that Jesus is telling us this morning, um, He's speaking about people who are lost and people who are quote-unquote found. They either think they're found or they're actually found. You get to decide. You get to decide who, which part you are. But who is Jesus primarily speaking about in these three parables? Is He speaking to the lost ones or is He speaking to the found ones? Who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, normally when you hear the parable of the prodigal son, this, we, we, we completely emphasize only the lost one, don't we? We mainly just focus on the lost son. But who is Jesus talking to here? Well, in all things, context is king, right? Context matters. Have you ever heard that before? Context definitely matters, just to put it to you in maybe a, a mildly ridiculous way. Like, you can, you can sleep in public, can't you? Right? When, our, when we were on our UK trip, which shameless plug, we're going to be sharing about our trip next week that we did a mission trip on the U, to the UK on. We're on this, uh, we're fighting jet lag, we're riding on a train, in public, on a train, fighting jet lag, every single person on our team is just like ugly sleeping, you know, just like the head bobbing, drool coming out of your mouth, right? We're sleeping in front of everybody, you know, everyone can just watch us sleep, right? If you're, if you're sleeping on an airplane, that seems to be fine, right? I even walked in the public library the other day, someone's sleeping on, I guess what you could call a couch, it's not even big enough to be a couch, someone's just sleeping in front of everybody, you know, and that's, that's acceptable, that's fine, why? Because we're in public, but is it okay if you walk into my room at night? and I'm sleeping, and you watch me sleep. Is that okay? No, it's not, is it? Yeah, that's gonna feel, I'm going to feel very different about that. I'm not going to be okay with that, am I? Why? Because the room I'm in when I'm sleeping matters, doesn't it? The context of where I'm sleeping matters. Well, if the same is true of sleeping, it's definitely true of the Bible. It's definitely true of the Bible, that context really matters. What's the context? Read verses 1 and 2 with me in chapter 15. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, so just interpret that as the really bad people, the people in society that you don't want to associate with, the untouchables, basically. That's how these people were viewed. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. They're drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, you can understand, to be religious people who think they're really good. They're standing before God's fine. What are they doing? They're grumbling. What are they saying about Jesus? This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. They're grumbling because Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with them. Wow, I mean, can you believe this guy? Jesus? I mean, seriously, didn't Jesus' mama teach him any better? You know, bad company corrupts good morals, right? You, you should be careful about who you're spending time with, right? We, we, we think these sort of things in life. Well, why are these people grumbling? Why are the religious people grumbling? Well, think about it. If Jesus was embracing and inviting tax collectors, prostitutes, uh, adulteresses, lepers, demoniacs, half-breeds into the inner circle of God's favor, if He's inviting them into the kingdom, which is what all these parables are about, then these people who think that they're in the center of that favor can now sense that their monopoly on God's favor is in serious jeopardy. The people who've always thought they're in the center of it feel like the circle's getting drawn a little too wide. They're not as much in the center as they thought they were. And if that is you, you'd be grumbling too, wouldn't you? How does Jesus respond to this grumbling? 
what he responds with is extremely powerful. He, he answers them with this triptych uh, parable series. A triptych is a set of three associated artistic, literary, or musical works that are intended to be appreciated together. That's what a triptych is. All three of these stories are meant to be appreciated together. Each makes the same point throughout, but each also makes its own point. Each makes its own point, but they all make the same point. And in these stories, we are shown the purpose of the kingdom of God. We're shown what the purpose is of the kingdom, of what we should be about even as a church, about who should be in this kingdom, who should be a part of a community of faith even like this. We're shown what the purpose of this kingdom is. It's to bring the lost to God. It's to bring the lost to God. The purpose is to bring the lost home. That's what we see here. So this will be on the screen if you, if you want to follow along in a more concrete way. We see in the first parable of the lost sheep the need for the search. The second parable, we see the nature of the search. And then in the prodigal son parable, we see those that are searched for. So first, let's just look at this, the need for the search. We see this in the parable of the lost sheep. Read with me in verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. It says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, what does he do? He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Jesus kind of breaks the cardinal rule here of teaching, of exegesis, basically. He starts with application. That's what he starts this whole thing with in verses three through four. He says, guys, I need you to make this connection here in your grumbling. If you lose a sheep, if you lose a sheep, you go after it, right? That's what he says. He basically says, that's all I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. When these people lose sheep, they don't just go, oh, well, it's just my sheep. We'll let it go, right? And Jesus says, neither do I. That's what he's saying. The sheep belongs with the rest of the flock. That's why it's called lost, because it belongs somewhere else. He says, you do this very thing. That's basically his point. You do this. He wants them to agree that this is what you do, right? You do the same thing. You might not have a sheep, right? I'm guessing. Maybe somebody does in this room. I doubt none of you have sheep, so when I say you do as well, you're like, well, I don't do that. You know, but I, I was thinking about this. The same would be true of us with car keys, wouldn't it? Right? Like I have, uh, I've owned a van for a few years, okay? I'm not bragging, but I do. I own a van. And uh, foolishly, I've only owned one key and one key fob to this van the entire time, okay? It's just what came with the van, and I've been too cheap to go get another one. And so far, it's worked out. I don't know how it's worked out that we haven't lost this thing with having four kids. I don't know how this has worked out, Okay? But I can't imagine, there are moments where I go, man, if I lose this thing, like this is not gonna be, this is not gonna be good, right? I don't have an alternative solution if I can't find these keys, do I? So when I lose the keys or when one of my kids plays with them and loses them, what do we do? We go on a search, don't we? We gotta find the keys. We don't just go, oh well, I'll go get another key, right? Or oh well, I'll just use another key. We don't do that, I need these keys, right? I search for these keys. If Jesus were standing here in front of me, he'd go, when you lose your keys, you look for it, don't you? And I go, uh-huh, yeah, I do, right? I don't just go, I'll go, that's fine. We'll let, it, we'll let it lie where it is, right? 
The value of something is revealed when it's lost. That's the point. Jesus is saying, you do this. You do this. But what's interesting here is the reaction of the shepherd to actually finding the lost sheep. This would have really struck these people as a bit odd. Because if you went as a shepherd out and found your lost sheep, many of these people might have just thought they could look at the sheep and say, all right, let's walk back. Right? You walk back. That'll teach you to wander off. Right? That might be what you do. But no, this shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders and he rejoices. He's not put out. He doesn't take his anger out on this stray. The response of rejoicing seems really out of proportion to the occasion is what you're supposed to get from this. So Jesus asks, which one of you, if you had 100 sheep and lost one, you don't leave the 99 to go after the one that's lost? The natural response is, all of us would do that. That's how the response would go. And if you continue on, what man of you, when you find it, would lay it on your shoulders rejoicing? They would go, probably none of us. That's a little weird. Why would we do that? That's a weird thing to do. I mean, don't miss this illustration, because when we think of sheep, we're not around sheep a lot. And so a lot of us think of sheep, if you had one, you're like, oh, it's my pet Sophie, you know, like it's, it's adorable. Or we think of sheep like a kid does, you know, like it's cute, oh, don't let it wander. But a sheep in this day and age, and for other people actually farm sheep, it's just livestock. Right? There's not this emotional, like, named attachment to this sheep. And that's what makes this so powerful. This, this guy throws a party for a lost livestock. He invites the neighborhood over. Do you see this? If you think this is strange, it gets weirder in the second parable, okay? What Jesus is making clear in this first triptych is the need for the search, the search for something that's lost. It's natural. It's normal. You even do it. But the second thing is the nature of the search. We see it in verse 8 through 10 of the parable of the lost coin. It says, or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What the first parable makes clear is the purpose of the kingdom. It's to search out the lost and bring them home, bring them back to the flock. In other words, we see the need for the search, right? There's a need for it. What's built upon here in the second story is the nature of the search. That's what's being built upon here. We have no idea from the first parable what the shepherd went through to bring that sheep home, do we? We have no idea. All we know is that he didn't stop searching until he found the sheep. That's all we know. We have no idea what he went through. It could have been, could have been days, right? He could have been hooting and hollering and whistling and it could have been terrible weather and over a big mountain. We have no idea, right? We have no idea what the nature of the search was like to find this sheep. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's showing us the nature of the search. And here we have a lady. She's got 10 coins, which a coin was uh, representative of a day's wage for, for a laborer, and she loses one of them, right? So this, these, these, these are meant to actually be representative of this woman being a poor woman, and these are her savings. So we're supposed to understand here. So this would be a serious loss to her, although an insignificant loss to many other people maybe even people who are hearing this story, what does she do? Does she just cut her losses? Does she say, just a coin, I'll go make another one? Is that what she does? Well, no. What happens? The whole house is lit up, isn't it? The whole house is lit up. You can imagine 
Chairs are being put on the table, you know, like uh, every inch is swept. The woman is diligently seeking this coin until she finds it. She's thorough. That's what you're meant to see here. Just like the shepherd, she doesn't stop until she finds this object. Guys, in other words, our God is, yes, the God of universes, but He's also the God of square inches. He's covering this place. She's searching for this coin. And just like the shepherd, the woman rejoices when she finds the coin, rejoices, throws a neighborhood block party, right, over this coin, doesn't she? She invites the neighborhood over, and Jesus says, this is what it's like. This is what it's like when the untouchable bad people that you're, you're so afraid of and grumbling about, when they repent, when those sinners repent and enter the kingdom of God, all heaven goes nuts and cheers. And if religious people are grumbling at this, and heaven's cheering, and religious people are grumbling, and heaven's cheering, how are you supposed to understand that? Do you see the contrast? These are the first two parables. And they come to this climactic finish here in the parable of the lost sons. Verse 11, and this is what we want us to see here. The other two parables have been leading up to this one. And this one is making Jesus' point come together very clearly. Don't miss it. What we see here in all actuality is two lost sons and one prodigal father. That's what we see here. That's what we see here. Because what it means, what the word prodigal even means, this should be on the screen for you. Prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. It's being wastefully extravagant. So yeah, the first son, the lost son, we see he's a bit of a prodigal, right? He wastefully spends what he has. But more than anything here, the irony is that, yes, this son recklessly spends, but in all actuality, according to the definition, the the prodigal of the story is the father, who's extravagantly spending his grace and his mercy, the father of the kingdom. And so, we're just going to walk through this, okay? We're going to walk through this here and just look at the running son, the distant son, and then just right at the end here, the grace of the father. The running son, verses 11 through 24. Verse 11 through 24, we see this. The running son. It says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. We see here this shocking speech of the son. He's home with his dad. And he says, Dad, I want my share of the property that's going to be coming to me. This is shocking speech because to ask for the father's inheritance was to say to your father, I wish you were dead because I can't get that stuff until you die. So I'd rather have that than to have you. It's essentially what's being said here. 
So you never got the inheritance until your father died. And what's even more interesting in Jewish culture is that the older brother always received two-thirds of the inheritance, always. The younger brother, only a third. But to top it off, the inheritance that he would have been asking for was almost always tied up in the land. So essentially, for the father to give him a third of his inheritance, the father would have to sell off a third of his land, which would be very significant because in this day and age, your identity or your value was really tied up into your property. If you had property, you were somebody. So the father has to sell off a third of his property and give it to his son, who essentially wishes he was dead. This lost, running son, he wants the father's things, he doesn't want his father. He says, I want your stuff, I don't want you. So the son's speech is really shocking, but to be honest with you guys, the father's response is even more shocking. Normally, a Middle Eastern father would have driven the son out of the house and probably verbally and physically abused him. Instead, this father is enduring the worst thing a human being can endure, rejected love. Rejected love. Imagine somebody saying this to you, a child of your own, which I know for me that might be hard to imagine, but just imagine it, you know, right? Rejected love. What do we often do when we receive rejected love? Well, we probably get angry, we retaliate, we reject them, we rise up, we flex our muscles if you have any, right? That's what we do. We, we do whatever we can to actually diminish our affection for the son, don't we? For the child. And in the process, we, we want them to know about our diminished affection for them, don't we? That's what we normally would do. So you see, all we have here, though, in verses 13 to 14 These are the only verses that actually describe this son's life when he went out. All we're told is he went out, he squandered his property in reckless living. It's just summed up. That's all it is. He he wasted all that he had. He used his father. He used the resources he had. I imagine that if that is the person you are, when you're going out, you're not being generous and loving people and serving people, right? You're probably using anybody and anything along the way just to feed your comfort, right? To feed your joy, to feed whatever it is that you're living for, right? To feed your experience. This is the man that this person is. He's an independent free man. I probably imagine that many of us can sympathize with this guy if not even empathize with this guy. But then he spends everything he has, a famine hits, and what does it say in verse 14? Really important verse. He began to be in need. He began to be in need. So what does he do, verse 15? What does he do with his need that he has? He hires himself out. What country is he in, remember? He's a far country. He's not in Israel, right? He's not in Jewish land, right? So Jewish ears would have winced at this. Basically, this guy goes out as a Jewish person and hires himself out to a Gentile. This would have been like horrible humiliation. The word literally means that he glued himself to a Gentile as a servant, right? Still, this, this, this would have really landed on their ears in a rough way. But more so than we find him in the fields that he's working with the pigs. And what's he doing? longing for the food that they have. Jesus' mentioning of the son's time with the pigs is actually just another sign of this guy's utter separation because to a Jewish person, swine were unclean by law. 
They were unclean. And here he finds himself dependent upon an unclean thing. He's practically one of them. He's hit rock bottom. He's now utterly alien to these people. So look at what Jesus is doing here in this parable. He's setting up this lost son as the perfect example of all the untouchables, of all the undesirables to whom the kingdom is being brought to. Right? The the tax collectors and sinners that people are grumbling about, this lost son is like the epitome of that person. And this guy, what does he do? He deceives himself. He thinks he's going to find freedom. And what does he find, you guys? He finds slavery. That's what he finds. Maybe you have that same experience. Just wanting things, not God. Running from Him. Thinking you're going to find freedom. And where do you find yourself? Enslaved again. So what does he do? Well, he gets homesick. He gets homesick. The guy was home. He gets sick of being home. And now he's homesick. And he thinks, well, my father won't receive me back as a son, but maybe as a servant, right? I mean, Serving him would be better than doing what I'm doing. Maybe I can go pay him back. So he thinks to himself to go and say that he's sinned against heaven, which reference to God and before you. And interestingly, though, what happens? The father hasn't moved on with his life, has he? He hasn't forgotten about the son. He's said to be daily. You're, under, you're supposed to understand this to be a daily scanning of the horizon for his lost son. This isn't a random occurrence where you just happen to be looking that day for his son. Right? Verse 20, he's scanning the horizon for his son. And what's his reaction? He sees his lost son coming home. And what does he do? Does he go inside, lock the door, say, I want you, the servant, to go outside, tell my son I don't want to see him ever again? After what he said to me, I'm gonna, I want you to go outside and tell him that. Does he send somebody out and say, you're not welcome here? What does he do? Well, no. Verse 20, what does the father do? The father runs, right? He arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Do you you see how radical this is? The father runs, like, we, we miss this. We miss the significance of this because Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run, okay? Children ran, yeah. Youth ran, okay? Women ran. Dads, no way. That would have been humiliating. It would have been embarrassing. If I run, it's embarrassing, but it's not even culturally embarrassing. But nonetheless, like, if a father runs in this culture, it's, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. You don't do that. But this father doesn't care. He doesn't care. But more than seeing him, what does he do? He feels compassion. He has compassion. Not disappointment. Not anger. Compassion. And he runs. Then what does he do? He hugs him. He embraces him. And then what does he do? He kisses him. And do you see, he does all these things He does all these things before the son even gets a word out of his mouth. 
what does the son do? He tries to roll out his plan, right? He's meek, he's humble, he's sorry. He sees clearly now. The son's response to his father's extravagant, gracious actions, well, it was to think, what? That he's not a son. That's what he thought. But hopefully he could become a slave. And man, I think a lot of us think this way in our relationship with God. When we see our sin, we feel bad about it. We see our unworthiness, so we, we what? We go, I'm gonna pay you back, God. Just make me a slave. We start making promises about what we can do to pay God back, so to speak, but how does the father respond? What will he do? This guy was living with pigs. I can't imagine he smelled that good, okay? Just being honest with you. I can't imagine it. The father doesn't even say, go take a bath. What does he do? Get my best robe. Put it on him. Right? Get the ring. Put it on his finger. Hey, give him some sandals. Guys, a robe represented kingship, royalty. The ring represents sonship, that familial relationship. I have access to this father as a son. Those sandals represented something significant because only slaves were barefoot. Do you you see how crazy this story is, guys? The only thing in this story that this lost son asks for and the father doesn't give him is to make him a slave. The only thing he ever asks for that the father denies him is to be a servant, is to be a slave. What does he say? Nope, you're a son. His son was lost, he's found, block party, right? But there's someone who isn't celebrating. What is he doing? He's grumbling, isn't he? He's grumbling. Verse 25, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant, what's going on. He said, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost and is found. So the older brother hears the younger has returned. Now there's this party thrown for him, and he refuses to go out. So what happens? The father goes out to him. See that? Why is the elder son mad? Well, if you read it, he's mad because of the calf. This kid got a fattened calf, right? That was a big deal. You gave him a calf, which is weird to us, but meat was really expensive. The older brother was saying, how dare you use our wealth like this? In other words, I have some right over your things. 
He doesn't address his father. He publicly humiliates his father. Do you notice this? He doesn't call him father. What does he say? He just says, look, look. We got another not very good son, don't we? Right? How does the father respond? Does he say, are you kidding me? This is my stuff. No, what does he say? He says, my child, son, I want you in the feast. He entreated him to come in. To the older son, his father was a taskmaster, right? I've been slaving. I've never disobeyed your orders. Never? I mean, this guy was convinced of his own goodness, and this assurance made him blind to his own lostness. He had been by the father the whole time, but he was just as distant from him as the younger brother. What's going on here? We see that the son who thought he was never lost was actually far more lost than he could even see. His reaction to his brother's homecoming revealed his lostness. Now, this shall be on the screen here for you. St. Augustine put it this way, that it's possible for older brothers to leave the father without leaving the farm. He says, for it is not by our feet nor by change of place that we either turn from God or to God. It's in our darkened affections. That's where the distance lies from God's face. It has nothing to do with proximity. You could be coming to church every week, right? You could be doing a lot of things, feeling like, I've been here all along. I've been doing all this stuff. You can do a lot. You could be close to a lot of things. It has nothing to do with that, does it? See, the irony is that the younger son wanted the father for his stuff, but we see here that the older son served the father in order to get the stuff. Whether that be his own honor, his wealth, whatever have you, his goodness on the outside was just a facade. He was just as lost. He didn't love the father for the sake of the father. He loved the father for what the father gave him. Guys, see, running people use things to find life apart from God. Religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people obey God because they love God. That's why they stay. Now, if you remember who Jesus is talking to and who's grumbling, seeing that this parable, you should see that this is way more about the older brother than it is about the younger brother. Remember, context is king, isn't it? Why did the story just not end in verse 24? Why all these other details? Well, Jesus is essentially raising this question, who really is lost? Who is it that's really far from the kingdom? Here we see the grumbling of the older brother who's never left. This is more about the hard heart of the older brother than the running heart of the younger brother. Do you notice that we don't get a lot of details about the lost son's rebellion? Remember, it was just like in one verse, it was summed up, wasn't it? But we get a bunch of details about the older brother's resentment, don't we? There's a lot of details there. Guys, what's really going on here? What's really happening? This is so brilliant by Jesus, guys. It's brilliant and so powerfully beautiful, you guys, because Jesus is actually suggesting a fulfillment to something that we've seen all throughout the pages of Scripture. You've probably, if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen story after story about this older, younger brother theme, haven't you? And you've either asked it out loud or sometimes in your head, you're like, what's this about? Why is it always the younger? Don't you? It keeps coming up. 
I mean, even according to Jewish custom, the oldest son is the honor bearer of the family. So it's his legacy that's most important in the family, the older brother. So even if he dies and he leaves a childish, childless widow, the younger son is supposed to marry his widow. And even if they have kids, the baby that's born is supposed to be considered the dead brother's firstborn. That's how important the legacy of the older born is. And if you're familiar with the family stories of the Bible, which we went part of through some of them last summer through the book of Genesis, you know that the honored older brothers throughout the Bible, they kind of tend to be these like dense idiots, don't they? A little bit. They're just a little more like live by the, you know, their stomachs or whatever have you, you know? We consistently see that the younger brothers are outsmarting and outshining all the older brothers. You see this in the story of Cain and Abel. You see this in Jacob and Esau with Joseph and all of his brothers who sell him into slavery, right? You see it if you fast forward in the life of David, King David. He has, he's, he's the youngest of all the brothers, right? And it all culminates here in this parable that Jesus tells. This doesn't mean at all. When you read these stories, it doesn't mean that the younger brother's better. Not at all. This is just another way that God continues to show his wisdom. And he uses the weak to shame the strong by making the older serve the younger. As we see in this older brother, younger brother theme that God is continually choosing the B team, right? The, the bench warmers, the alternates, the lowly, the foolish, the weak, the unassuming, to keep the people who think they're all-stars humble. That's what he does. Older brother after older brother fails again and again and again, refuse to serve the younger brother. And then we get to the lost son story and the older brother is put into his place to show us the desperate need for finally, once in history, a good older brother. Guys, don't miss this. There is a massive difference between the third story and the first two stories. Do you notice it? It's just, it should be just right there. In the first two parables, someone goes looking for the lost one, don't they? In this parable, no one goes. The son is lost and no one goes. Certainly not the older brother. He didn't want to go. So who's going to go? Who's going to seek out the lost and rescue them? Well, the good older brother will. The only good older brother will. The one addressing the grumblers will. It's Jesus, right? He will leave the glory of heaven. He will leave home, right? The, the Father's side. And he will humble himself. And he who was rich became poor. So that those who were in the pig pen, right? Those who had nothing, who knew of their deep need, might receive the eternal wealth of being in the family of God. That's why we are told in Luke 19, Jesus said of himself, the son of man came to seek, to save the lost. That's why I'm here. I left home. He's the true good older brother. He's gonna light up the house, right? He's gonna put the chairs on the tables. He's gonna sweep every floorboard. He's gonna every, sweep every nook and cranny until the task is finished. He says he loses none that his father gives him. 
He will go searching in every casino, every whorehouse, every adult video store, every apartment, every library, every bedroom, every pigsty, every place that you think is a good place, every place you think is a not good place, right? He's going to go everywhere until he finds every single sinner that God is calling home. He scandalizes the older brothers. They grumble as they cling to their pearls and Jesus is dishing them out. Guys, you might be on pause right now and you're like, someday I'll re-engage in what God's doing in this world. But this story reminds you that God is never on pause. He's a pursuing God. He doesn't take breaks. He's going after people. Finally, we have an older brother who serves the younger brother willingly, guys. Guys, this is so radical. Just think about these three images, the shepherd, the woman, the brother. People in the first century thought of shepherds as shady characters. They were sketchy people, okay? They weren't highly thought of. Women were second-class citizens. And Jesus is saying to these religious people, identify with these people. And they're just like, why would I do that? And Jesus is getting down and he's holding their hands saying, I'm identifying with him. Right? Not Jesus. He gets down. Jesus identifying himself with these people. This is the religious people's big problem. They distance themselves. They don't leave the house to celebrate. They let the sheep leave the flock. They just go and find another coin. But Jesus is not distancing himself. He's getting down. He's holding their hands to say that the kingdom is for them. If you find yourself lost this morning, and you find a piece of you that's longing to be found by God, Jesus has come, and he finds you in your place, and he grabs you by the hand, and he puts you on his shoulders, and he brings you home. This is how amazing your God is, you guys. He's a pursuing God. He initiates. He doesn't wait, and he goes after both sons, both sons. I'll end with this. It says in Ephesians 2, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and what? You know the verse? Members of the household of God. When you think about the kingdom of God, you guys, Jesus wants you to think not only of a king and citizenship, he wants you to think of a family. Your older brother has gone out to bring you back to the Father, who doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up this morning, but embraces you and washes you with the older son's blood. So here we come with our battered and feeble and tattered faith, don't we? It's not much to look at, 
but the Father receives you warmly in exchange. He gives you the fullness of the riches that you have in Jesus. So no matter where you are this morning, I invite you to come home. Come home. Father, this morning I do pray that your word would just sink into our lives, that it would shape us the church to love the people that you love, to pursue the people that you pursue. But God, show us once again in a way that only you can that we all were once lost. And we didn't find you, God, you found us. Man, your grace is so extravagant. And I pray, Lord, that it would just saturate every nook and cranny of our hearts this morning and turn us into these people that you're wanting to create. In Christ's name I pray, amen.